0: listening to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtasha Hadi. In each episode, we will talk with some of the most inspiring and courageous individuals who share their unique stories about how they overcame hardships, learned their craft, and found their purpose. These conversations are meant to inform, entertain, and inspire. Okay, happy listening. In this episode of Stories of Transformation, we'll be speaking with Lucas Joppa. Lucas is a deeply curious person, and that curiosity led him and his wife to serve in the Peace Corps in Malawi. This experience ignited his passion to try and answer the question, how do we help people understand the natural world? Pursuing this question propelled him through his career where he's currently the Chief Environment Officer at Microsoft. This question is particularly important to reflect on in the context of the current COVID-19 pandemic, where many experts have said it's the consequence of human disruption of Earth's natural systems. Despite all the anguish related to human lives lost and the economic peril, there have been some benefits for the environment. For example, pollution levels in China to Italy dropped dramatically after people were forced to stay at home to halt the spread of the coronavirus, and the United States is no different. All you have to do is look up some satellite photos to see the before and after images. It's actually unbelievable. Lucas goes deep and shares lessons learned from his experience serving with his wife as Peace Corps volunteers in Malawi. This experience ended up being fundamentally transformational and paramount to his personal and professional success. As a former volunteer myself, I want to say that serving the Peace Corps is a transformational experience because it teaches us life's most important lessons. It teaches us how to be resilient, how to adapt, how to be servant leaders, how to stay globally minded, how everything is really interconnected. And the ultimate magic of the Peace Corps is that you go in thinking that you're going to change the community that you're serving. But in the end they're the ones that ultimately change you in his current role at microsoft lucas knows that not everybody is living the same reality all over the world specifically he shares how and why certain environmental technologies that would be effective and feasible in one country won't be effective in another his work at microsoft involves running a program called ai for earth which is dedicated to deploying decades of artificial intelligence research and engineering in four main areas those being agriculture water biodiversity, and climate change. Lucas discusses how his work is to fundamentally change the way human society monitors, models, and manages Earth's natural systems. In this episode of Stories of Transformation, you'll learn what you can do to contribute to solving global issues we face today. So without further ado, I bring you Lucas Joppa. Lucas Joppa, welcome to the podcast. How are you today, sir? Very well. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Lucas, I'd like to ask a question. How would you describe what you do in your own words, sir?
1: well i'm the chief environmental officer at microsoft and that entails everything from looking after our core operational sustainability ensuring that our products and facilities are sourced manufactured operated and managed at the end of life as sustainably as possible but also All of our work with customers and partners, our product innovation and deployment, really the end-to-end view of sustainability through the lens of one of the world's largest technology companies.
0: Well, That's fascinating. And just to be clear, you're the first person to hold this position at Microsoft, correct?
1: Yeah, I'm the first chief environmental officer for the company. Before that, I was the first chief environmental scientist for the company. But Microsoft's been focusing in different ways on environmental sustainability for well over a decade. I actually came into Microsoft through our blue sky research arm, Microsoft Research, where I was tasked with working at the intersection of environmental and computer science from a really academic perspective. And there were also teams at that time already working on our product and facilities sustainability teams etc so we've been thinking about this really holistically but my position is the first to really bring that all together in a cross-company function
0: it's a lot of responsibility yeah gosh so what i'd love to kind of talk to you about lucas is how you got to where you are right now because you know getting to the top of microsoft in terms of being responsible for essentially this element of, of microsoft doesn't happen overnight so your trajectory started in the P score, is that correct
1: Yeah, I would say my my trajectory started a little bit before the Peace Corps, and it included getting into the Peace Corps, you know? Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. So how did you start this whole process? I mean, for me, this all really goes back to middle school, which is when I first met my wife. We've been together uh, since high school, and we were getting towards the end of university. I remember walking down the street in Madison, Wisconsin. We both went to University of Wisconsin-Madison. And we were talking about what we should do when when we got done with our degrees. And my wife said, well, I've always really wanted to go into the Peace Corps. And I thought, wow, that's, you know, it's pretty rare that you've been with somebody for, you know, 10 years and you learn something fundamentally new about them. And so I thought, oh, well, let's do that. And so I just remember walking down the street and her saying that and me saying, that sounds cool. Let's do it. And uh Obviously, for those of you listeners who have been through the Peace Corps, you know it's a little bit more difficult than just saying "let's join the Peace Corps" and and sh- shipping off the next day. Um, so, uh, but when you're young and, and naive, um, you think anything's possible. So, yeah, we managed to get through a pretty rigorous process and um, and headed off to Malawi as um, I was an environmental volunteer and
0: she was a healthcare educator. Oh, that's fascinating. So you're essentially, you're married to your, is it safe to say your middle school sweetheart? Is that right?
1: Uh, I would say that she would probably say high school sweetheart. It might depend on when each of us started uh, started obsessing about the other, you know?
0: So you were there from 2004 until 2006. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Although we, we actually ended up getting um, medically separated towards the end of our second year for some of my wife's uh, health issues that she picked up while we were there, so um, so we didn't make it across the uh, finish line. We we almost came skidding across the finish
0: line, but, but not quite. Yeah, we'll get there. That's really interesting. Now, at the time in which you signed up for the Peace Corps, you weren't able to choose the country in which you were going to serve, and what's curious now is now when people sign up for the Peace Corps, they're essentially allowed to choose the country in which they want to serve. Did you know that? I did not know that. That's fascinating. You just gave them a region, right? You just gave you just told your recruiter, Hey, I'm interested in Sub Sahara, hey, I'm interested in the Far East, I'm interested in the Pacific Islands, and they just kinda of placed you there and then before actually, you knew it, you show up and yeah.
1: actually well, I don't know if my memory's accurate or not. What my wife and I remember is we were able to specify a region we did not want to go to and a sector we did not want to go in. And I remember for no reason other than we were two naive kids from northern Wisconsin who'd never left the country. I kind of asked my wife where we didn't want to go. And she was like, I don't know, let's not go to southeastern Africa. And we were like, well, we're not really into HIV AIDS education. I don't know anything about it. She doesn't know anything about it. You know, I was a wildlife ecology major. She was a a speech language pathology uh, major. So we said, we don't want to do those two things. And the Peace Corps came back and said, great, we've heard you. Uh, we've placed you in Malawi in uh, HIV AIDS education. <laughs> 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 and, um, and I remember going and speaking to a bunch of our, we had a lot of older friends. Many of my friends were kind of PhD students when I was an undergrad or, or law students. And the advice was very much just do what they say, go there figure it out, be open to new experiences, and you can always work with the Peace Corps to change. Again, I don't know if that's still true, but we we took that advice. We went to the place that we told them we didn't want to work in. We went into the sector we told them we didn't want to work in. And we had an incredible experience. Southeastern Africa has just been like a motivational place, an inspirational place for me since the first time I, I got off that plane in Lilongwe. And my wife stayed in, in healthcare and
0: I switched over to, to wildlife and forestry and everything worked out extremely well. Now, when you first got your invitation letter that you're going to serve in Malawi, what had you known about Malawi? Did you have to look it up on a map? I mean, kind of talk to us about what that process was like when you first got your invitation letter.
1: Oh, yeah. The first thing that happened is we opened it, we read it. And the second thing that happened is we opened a map and we started looking at it. I didn't even know there was a country called Malawi.
0: And what's really interesting about Malawi is that it's one of the first Peace Corps countries. In op- I mean, I think Peace Corps started operating in Malawi in the 1960s. Is that correct?
1: Uh, yeah. And it's uh, you know extremely heavily uh, memorialized and, and romanticized in some ways through the writings of, of Paul Thoreau, right?
0: Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah.
1: And so I like to consider myself well-read, but uh, I had not I had not read Paul Thoreau. I like to consider myself um, a bit of an observer of uh, geopolitical boundaries, and I didn't know that Malawi existed. So, yeah, it was definitely an interesting experience. But I do remember looking at that map and just thinking, wow, that looks like an interesting place, right? Mm-hmm. Because its shape and its position is almost like its geometry reflects its geopolitics,
0: right? Oh, that's curious. Unpack that thought, please.
1: You know, you could just see kind of like, there's this like almost piece of land that got carved out as there's these massive chunks of land, whether it's Zambia or Mozambique or Tanzania, you know, and you're like, well, what's this little thing doing sandwiched between all of these massive countries? And, mm-hmm. you know, you start reading about it and, you know, you start reading about negotiations and, and you know, myth or not, you know, the first battle that was never fought, but was first surrendered on Lake Malawi. And just seeing that significant influence, you know, it's this country with this really strong influence from from many different countries around the world. And it's just kind of this tiny little strip of land. And, you know, I'm just really, you know, I come from an ecology perspective and um it's north south span well it's i think you know mm-hmm. the, i don't know what the max is malawi is it 60 or 100 miles wide at its max or something like that it's mm-hmm. it's super narrow but very long and that length when you're in that part of the world really brings with it some really extreme uh eco changes in the landscape and so i was just fascinated and super excited to get there
0: That's really interesting. So when you got there, there's always this element of culture shock when when people go from one place to another, from one country to another, right? So as you dig into your memory, can you kind of share maybe what your biggest experience was as it pertained to culture shock? Like what was something completely different that you experienced there that you just had no idea that this was going to happen? It doesn't map to American culture, American values. Um, Can you think of something share that with us?
1: I guess nothing really shocked me. I, I, I live kind of in a, in a bemused state about, about life, I think. So um, I'm, I'm, oh, okay. I'm very rarely kind of shocked or surprised. That doesn't mean that I knew it going into it. I'm just not surprised that such a thing might be possible. I think one of the things that we struggled with you know, I'll I'll say just one thing practically that taught us a lot, and then one thing more culturally that was that was difficult. And I know many Peace Corps volunteers deal with these things in different ways. the The practical struggle was, you know, we went for our training and our language training in the south of Malawi where they spoke Chichewa, and we were going to be placed in the north where they spoke Chitumbuka, and so we had this really mm-hmm. weird. You know, we spoke English, which our host family didn't. We were being taught this language, which our host family didn't speak. And so we, we really had kind of like a disjointed first month or two in, in country. But then the thing that I would say that we struggled with the most, and this was whether you're a you know a single female, a single male, or a married couple, you you sometimes have unique experiences um, that intersect with culture and geography through those three different kind of categories of, of volunteer. And for us mm-hmm. as a married couple in that part of the world, just the strong male-female husband-wife expectations in society were were difficult um, because my wife is used to being seen as a strong independent woman and you know as somebody who cares about equal responsibilities in life you know for me it's not crazy to go and help my wife carry water for instance Mm -hmm. um for me it's not crazy that somebody could come to the door um to speak to my wife about something and actually be able to speak to her, not through me to her,
0: right? Oh, how curious.
1: And wow. those were all really eye-opening experiences. You know, you're brought up that there is the way, which is the way you're brought up. You go as a Peace Corps volunteer in, in many ways to help and in other ways to help model different cultures in different ways, uh, potentially more equitable ways of being. And... Seeing how hard it is to go and and change hearts and minds in those categories, those deep social cultural attitudes and belief structures, the difficulty of that was a huge learning experience for me
0: no i can I can completely empathize you know I was a peace Corps volunteer not too far from you, and uh, I remember going to Mozambique. And what's really curious about the Peace Corps is people who are interested in signing up will reach out to other people and say, you know, what was your experience like? Or the last questions like, should I do it? Shouldn't I do it? Now, in retrospect, I think to myself, there was no greater education for me at such a formidable sort of stage in my life than serving in the Peace Corps, being alone in an environment where I knew nobody. I knew nothing about the place in which I was essentially going to live for the next two years. And in many ways, just being completely vulnerable to that time and space because I was so green. And in that comes so much learning, so much learning and so much exposure to things that you just never thought you'd ever see. And I think you're sharing this idea that the way we do it isn't actually how people do it too, right? <laughs> That's oh, for sure. And I mean, you
1: know, I still speak about the Peace Corps as the single most transformative thing I've ever done in my life. Uh, it was the most transformative thing for me as an individual, for me as a husband, for our marriage. I think, you know, the Peace Corps is very much a make it or break it sort of experience, both for individuals and for marriages. And, um, <laughs> and, you know, I think anyone who's ever uh, been on the ground in the Peace Corps world understands just how many, uh, how many things fall apart in moments of stress. And then also professionally, because, you know, mm-hmm. skipping way ahead, I'm in a company and more generally a sector that mm-hmm. believes strongly in the ability of technology to help solve global problems at scale and i -hmm. believe in that i always have believed in that the peace corps never you know didn't do one thing to change my perspective on that at the highest level what it did show Mm -hmm. though is just how self-aware you really have to be in order to achieve that vision that if you are Mm -hmm. locked in the halls of microsoft or the boundaries of Silicon Valley or Puget Sound and Seattle, and you don't understand what it's like out there, that you don't understand that the technology, we can build anything, but if you can't understand it, if you can't operate it, if you can't maintain it, right, all of those Mm -hmm. sorts of things are what really make or break solutions. You know, the whole kind of manufacturer's trilemma of strong, light, and cheap, pick two. Right. Well, mm-hmm. when you're trying to build new technology for environmental sustainability solutions in the parts of the world that need it the most, well, you don't get to pick two. Right. In fact, you right. have, it's many more than just three. It's not a trilemma. You know, there's about a million different dimensions and none of them can be moved. So you have to build for the reality on the ground. And that's what the Peace Corps just like burned into my being, really.
0: I think that's really insightful and I feel like that's how I am too. And I think for those that have spent time in places like Malawi, in places like Mozambique, you know, I often tell people the most important thing that you can do as a young person is go to somewhere you never thought you'd go before and sit with somebody that has a completely different worldview from you. So you can understand the way in which you think you believe to understand the world actually may not be the right way or the best way In an effort to kind of build bridges, better understand others, and then also to bring that knowledge back in the context of, let's say, your line of work, and literally understand that the values that we have here, whether it's at Microsoft, whether it's at other corporations, whether it's here just in the United States, may not map properly to the values of people in other places in the world, right? That's what you're saying.
1: Oh, full stop. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I start with, at the very least, the way I see the world isn't necessarily the only way one can see the world, right? Mm-hmm. I I, you mm-hmm. know, I come from a very scientific background. I believe that in certain things, you know, in certain areas, certain phenomena, things like facts and truth actually do prevail. They do exist. So I'm not just a complete and total, you know, laissez-faire, you know, philosopher here. But at the very least, starting with the perspective that. People can see the world differently. Sometimes, in fact, many times, that's completely okay, right? And when it's not, when, it's, when it fails to align with the, with the realities of, of physics or justice or, or you know, equity, then you have to understand why they view the world that way so that you can you know, unravel it back to the beginning to try to put it back together in a different, more helpful, holistic manner. And so, you know, I I say this a lot, and it's just one thing that I constantly try to beat myself with every day. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, my mom used to always say, interesting people are interested, you know? Oh, that's great. And yeah, that's great. For me, I just try to live that first and foremost and hope that that will cover a whole lot of other flaws in, in myself. Um Because first and foremost, if you're interested, then you listen, right? If you're interested, then you're passionate. If you're interested, then people know you care. Just so much comes from that. If you're interested, you're open, you know, to new ideas. And um, for me, you know, I think it goes back to, like I said, my wife and I walking down that street and her wanting to go and being like, cool, why not? You know, and and mm-hmm. just hitting the ground, being like, "Wow, this is all so interesting, <laughs> right?" Um, some of it's interesting in a good feeling way. Some of it's interesting in a bad feeling way. But it's all interesting.
0: Yeah. So I've taken the liberty to kind of uh, watch a lot of your other interviews that you've done, and there's one theme that I think that you kind of talk about, which is really telling of who you are. And maybe this is something intrinsic to your your own personality. Uh, maybe it's been cultivated and or kind of heightened and or accentuated based on the experience you've had in your life. But this idea specifically is that you're a deeply curious person. And in that curiosity, it's kind of led you down this path of exploring, asking questions, being in conversations that you feel like matter. And essentially it's the thing that wakes you up in the morning that makes you want to essentially discover more do more, kind of push the boundaries that way. Is that accurate? Or am I just completely making that up? No,
1: I think that's right. And I take it both from a, you know, there's a very kind of like new agey part of my brain and another very kind of pragmatic, scientific, statistical part of my brain. And I try to make those two things complement each other instead of clash with each other all the time. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, this issue of curiosity, I think it It just makes sense, you know, like at a philosophical level. But I also think that if you look at it just from an empirical perspective, if you take like a statistical perspective on it, well, the only thing interesting in life is surprise, right? So if I have like a statistical model trying to predict something, what I'm most interested in as a statistician is the value of information of any particular data point. And some of the most valuable information that can come is when you get a new data point into your model that's far off from the prediction, right? And we would call that statistical surprise. And almost any statistician is immediately gonna go and start spending their time there. They're gonna try to understand if the data point is wrong or if their model is wrong. And that, that surprise drives their curiosity, right? And I think people that spend a lot of time with me realize that I'm a very opinionated person. I love to speak the most and have the most opinions about the things I know the least about. But you know you're on a good track with me in a meeting when I'm quiet and then ultimately I say, huh, that's interesting. That does not conform with my worldview which means that we're going to have a really interesting conversation that's going to result in either me being convinced you're wrong or you changing my worldview. And by the way, I am completely open to either of those options.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. And would you say a lot of that sort of started when you were boots on the ground in a place like Malawi?
1: Uh, No, I think it started, it's just the way I am. Um, I don't know why my brain works that way. But I think it started by being raised in a family that valued curiosity, that valued debate and argument and, you know, all of that. But it was put to the most severe test in Malawi because, you know, it can be tiring to have that perspective. It's just it's a lot easier to just think you're right, you know quite frankly yeah yeah.
0: and in this and in this day and age it's so much easier to be as you said like intellectually lazy like it's easy to fall into the curse of confirmation bias and in this day and age when information is ubiquitous and nobody has there's no monopoly over information you can find information out there that's going to essentially support the thing that you already think you know about the world right
1: exactly and it's 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 getting harder to be that way instead of easier as the amount of information grows right but then, you know, I would also say that taking a completely different tact on kind of my my issues with what, you know, the world might call the modern information age. So, sure, there's this ubiquity of information, and information for the human mind is the same evolutionarily as the same as fat is for our metabolism, right? We okay. We grew up in information-poor societies. Information was was meant to be pursued and hoarded right because we were mm. disparate we didn't have access to all of that the resources and the overhead that information gathering took just like the overhead and resources that fat gathering and caloric you know gathering took meant that evolutionarily we were designed to take this on and hoard it and you know what you see now is just from an information perspective it's just growing well beyond our ability to, um, to synthesize it. And this is why you see you know, technology companies like Microsoft pursuing technologies and approaches like machine learning and more generalized artificial intelligence because we, there's so much information. We need some intelligent systems to condense that down and deliver more actionable intelligence, Right. Otherwise, our brains will just be completely overwhelmed. There's a second bit, though. And this is what was made so clear to me in Malawi is we talk about information. And I I always say this is like, it's the most narcissistic definition of information the human species could ever come up with. Right. You know, you can find out everything about me and about my life with a few searches. Right. Right. We still have only discovered a small fraction of species on Earth, right? Mm -hmm. We still don't know how many Mm -hmm. trees there are. We still don't know the basic level of detail about the natural resources that support our global human economies and our cultural and overall human experience. And I saw that. I worked in a tiny little village up against the edge of a protected area called Nika National Park. Mm -hmm. And I did wildlife, um, part of what I did was wildlife education, you know, after school groups and things like that. And you start to realize that none of these kids have ever seen any of the animals that live in the park right next door. And just this oh, like, curious. you know, the the information that's out there is incredible. The information that anyone might have access to might still be extremely limited. Um, and and so for me it was just like okay how do you help people understand the natural world that's what i've always been interested in and how do you, one of the only ways i can imagine to do that at a global scale for, for to allow every individual to understand the natural world at a global scale is through scalable technology but then you know from a reality check perspective working with an after-school group outside of, you know, a tiny little dirt schoolhouse in Malawi, five kilometers away from one of the world's most incredible places, you know, the highest orchid endemism in the world, some of the highest leopard density in the world, these high forest mountain elephant populations, you know, just like incredible things. And they don't even know it exists, much less have seen it. That's kind of the reality check of, okay, like I'm super interested in this utopian global vision, but there's a lot to get from there down to where I am sitting on this, you know, on this rock talking to a bunch of kids with no shoes. So,
0: <laughs> and that's so curious. Now, how is it now, given the given this trajectory you've kind of made and you're sitting at this desk now as chief environmental officer here at, at Microsoft, how is it now that you're essentially bridging? what you've done and what you're responsible for. Like, can you kind of tell us what exactly your responsibility is at Microsoft? Help us understand what's going on there.
1: Yeah, sure. So I do a lot of what many people would think of as kind of traditional, you know, corporate sustainability. I look I ensure that the company's looking after the, you know, physical impact and footprint of our facilities and our energy use and, and all of that you know and i look after how our customers are are using our technologies to help them be better but i also do things like run a program called ai for earth which is okay. specifically dedicated towards deploying microsoft's over 35 years of research and engineering in the field of artificial intelligence in the four areas of agriculture water biodiversity and and climate change and that program really is it's kind of ambitious mandate is to fundamentally change the way human society monitors, models, and then ultimately manages Earth's natural systems. And so, you know, all of that really comes together in setting really ambitious goals for for the company uh, and for the world. Just a month ago, we announced that Microsoft would become the first company to commit itself to operating as a carbon-negative company. By 2030 that after that we'd go back and remove all of the historical carbon emissions associated with our business activities since we were founded in 1975 and we'd set up a billion dollar fund to help accelerate new technologies for everyone else to be able to play in these markets as well and so much of that you can trace directly back to some of the experiences in the Peace Corps. Why did we commit to not just operating as a carbon negative company going forward, but to also go back and clean up the work of our past? Well, it's because if you are self-aware enough and have traveled enough around the world, you realize the head start that so many countries and companies have gotten. And it's not an equal playing field right now. History and politics and everything else play into this. And so the Malawis of the world and the Boleros and and the Rumpis of the, you know, the world, the villages that I kind of lived around, like, they don't have the means to do what needs to get done right now. They're trying to survive. And so the companies like Microsoft need to go well above and beyond what we as a global society need to do. Why did we set up a billion dollar fund? It's because for the same thing, we need to invest to allow others that have fewer resources to do the same thing. And that's incumbent upon us to do. And that's a spirit that's instilled, you know, across the board in a Peace Corps experience. I think it's almost impossible to come out of a Peace Corps service without believing those things.
0: I think that's really inspiring that message you just shared with us so uh, Lucas I want to be respectful of your time because I know you're busy saving the world sir and um, what I'd love to kind of do is just wrap this up asking a few rapid fire questions right so kind of share with us the first thing that comes to your mind when I ask the following questions does that work for you?
1: Sure I should warn you that um, rapid fire
0: questions are my weakness <laughs> You're going to be surprised right you're going to be surprised that's what we're looking for that's right okay here we go Um, what would you tell your 20 year old self? Slow down. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, if you had one superpower, what would it be? Oh
1: man. If I had one superpower, well, this is a combination of superpowers, but I'm obsessed with being able to see the world through the dimensions that other organisms do. I'd love to be able to see like a cat and smell like a dog and all of the incredible things that all of other life can do. I'd love to have all of those senses and capabilities at my disposal.
0: What a great answer. Gosh. And um, lastly, what's your message for the world?
1: My message for the world is the same message I give myself, which is when you're thinking about solving problems, it's really easy to go and ask what the experts say the solution is, and then beat yourself up because you're not an expert in that, or you're not working in that area. What the world really needs is every single person through self reflection to understand what it is that they're uniquely gifted at and what they're uniquely passionate about, and to look at all of the problems they're interested in solving through the lens of their gifts, of their passion. And it might be true that their skill set is not the most important skill set that the world needs brought, but it's the most important skill set that that individual or that organization can bring. And that's the fundamental worldview, the fundamental solution mindset shift that I think we as a global society need to go through if we're going to harness the incredible creativity that the human species brings and the diversity that the human species brings to the magnitude of the challenges that we face.
0: Oh, that's that was wonderful. That was really insightful. I appreciate that insight there, Lucas. So Lucas, I just want to say, um, I want to thank you for the work that you do, the problems you're trying to solve for the generations to come. And uh, I want to thank you for taking the time out to speak to me today. Really appreciate this conversation, man. Thank you.
1: Thanks for having me. And, and may the Peace Corps continue forever.
0: All right, sir. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank, thank, you. thank you so much. Bye. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a review. You can also email me with feedback at storiesoftransformationpodcast at gmail.com. You can also join the conversation and find others like you by following us on Instagram at stories underscore of underscore transformation and on Facebook stories transformation. You can find all this information on my website as well www.baktashahadi.com. That's B-A-K-T-A-S-H A-H-A-D-I dot com.